0: This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. So glad to have you with us. I have someone on this week that I've wanted to talk to for a long time. The legend Danny Trejo. He's undeniably one of the hardest working people in Hollywood, with over 380 film credits to his name. His early life of crime and hard prison time is bigger and more dramatic than anything Hollywood can come up with. And his drive to help others is unstoppable. I'd say that almost everyone knows Danny Trejo. His career spans from runaway train to blood in, blood out. He starred in Heat with De Niro and Pacino, Con Air, Machete, Desperado. Breaking Bad fans know him as Tortuga. You recognize that huge tattoo. He got it in prison of a beautiful woman that's been featured in a ton of his movies. Trejo's been shot, stabbed, and killed so many times I can hardly count. But he's also beloved by our kids as Uncle Machete and Spy Kids. At 76, he's not slowing down. He has over a dozen films listed in post-production to come out when things start coming back to normal. I talked to Mr. Trejo about his incredible journey. He never forgets his roots. He still lives in Pacoima, California, where he grew up and started on a very early path of drugs and crime. Heroin at 12, hard prison time at San Quentin and Folsom, among others. Out of prison, he vowed to transform his life, to help others. He started working as a drug counselor, which he still does. A chance meeting with another fellow ex-prisoner, screenwriter Eddie Bunker, led him on his way. He went from extra, inmate number one on the call sheet, to playing the lead. Danny Trejo is many things. He's an entrepreneur, he has a new cookbook out, and he also owns a restaurant chain called Trejo's Tacos, one of Anthony Bourdain's favorite L.A. spots. Danny Trejo is a very different neighbor in Pacoima today than he was as a kid. He's dedicated himself to helping his community. The kids all know him. You'll find him driving around with socks and clothes in the trunk of his car to give to those in need. And mostly, he continues to counsel addicts, speak at state prisons, and at juvenile halls. And he's still making kick-ass entertainment. There's now an excellent new documentary about his larger-than-life life, and it's called Inmate Number 1.
1: All right, fellas, let's do this. My name's Danny Trejo. You might have seen me once in a while. Desperado, heat. Dust till dawn. Con Air. Machete. <laughs> They make movies and stories about guys like Danny. Danny is that guy. Danny was in a high stakes world from a very young age. Addicted to heroin since he was 12. He was just a kid caught up in the game. I had a sawed off shotgun and a hand grenade. I buried him. And I told my mom, be real careful in the backyard. <laughs>
0: this is a guy who's seen death just to get to 16 years old it's like the wild west
1: you're gonna be a criminal be a criminal 24 hours a day wow his name rang through every prison they knew he was coming they always knew he was coming i'm gonna be top predator no matter what it's clear they're gonna kill me i made a promise to myself start trying to do good i became a drug counselor Opportunity to help somebody one night got him into his first movie. My career took off immediately. The first five years, I just played Inmate number one, Cholo number one, Essay number one, number ten. Eddie Bunker, screenwriter, goes, You're Danny Trejo. He says, What a movie said. People are afraid of you. I want to say, Why me? (laughs) Quinn and I were coming up with a bunch of fake trailers. I said, I
0: got a fake trailer.
1: It's machete. It changed the paradigm of who could be a leading man. Everything good that has happened to me has happened as a direct result of helping someone else.
0: Everything. It's the idea that I can evolve. That's Danny's life. (laughs)
1: <laughs>
0: I had the carne asada and the Baja fish, and it was oh. absolutely wonderful.
1: <laughs> You're in LA. Are you in Los Angeles?
0: No, but I was um, raised in LA, in Temple City, in our, close to Arcadia.
1: Arcadia. That's close to the racetrack. Exactly. When I was in a camp, a juvenile camp, we used to clean up the racetrack. Yes, uh, when I was a bad kid.
0: <laughs> well, we're going to get into a little bit of that. But First of all, I want to say thank you so much for your excellent documentary and that honest look at your life. You've said so many inspiring things. And one of the things I read um, that you said in an interview is it doesn't matter where you start. It matters where you finish. So I thought maybe we'd start there. Tell me a little bit about 10, 11-year-old Danny. What what were your dreams at the time?
1: Well, <clears throat> You know, when I was 10 and 11, my dad was married to his job, you know, his construction and he took real pride in what he did. And his whole thing was to, you know, to get a house and get a car and get a pickup truck. And And uh, my mom, this was the 50s, so my mom was married to her house, you know, was a, she was a housewife. And... and and, and you know no no strike against them but that's that they didn't really have time you know I think I think mean, when you're raising a a child a kid and I don't want to sound like a, a like a crybaby but when you when you're you know time spending time with them is the most important thing in the world like, whether it's good time bad time doesn't matter as long as it's time with them you know and uh, and so they just didn't have really a lot of time for me so I had an uncle who happened to be <laughs> happened to be six years older than me he was the oldest of my dad the youngest of my dad's brothers he was the the youngest of 11 kids so my grandmother my grandmother and grandfather were kind of they didn't have time for him either so so me and him became really close my uncle Gilbert and he happened to be a drug dealer and and an armed robber. And uh, so I, that's that's kind of where, that was my role model. You know, I didn't, you know, God, I used to hear my dad just complain about how hard he worked. And I, I think when I was 10, 11 years old, I already wanted to be like my uncle. You know, I wanted to wear... I wanted to wear sharp shoes. My uncle had two hundred dollars shoes, and that was like the left one, you know. and uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And he had like, you know, you know, like $80, 90 ninety dollar pants and uh, beautiful shirts, and and like he dealt drugs, so he was always had had big guys around him. And by big guys, I mean that were well known in the neighborhood and stuff, you know. And uh, and I, that's. I, I, that's what that was my role model. And, and he and,
0: introduced you to some heavy shit.
1: Oh, yeah. He turned me on to grass when I was like eight and I was smoking grass. You know, I used to like smoke grass with him all the time. And then, and then at 12, right at 12, uh, that's why when he said 10 and 11, I was already smoking grass. And then at, at 12, he gave me a, a fix of heroin. Well, he didn't give it to me, he tried not to, but I, I, I I threatened to tell my grandmother what he was doing if he didn't. So, so I snitched my way into using <laughs> heroin, and uh, and then uh, uh, you know from then on it was just kind of my parents lost control completely. You know when when you once once you've used hard drugs, that's your mom and dad. You know. And my uncle was the main person in my life, you know. And uh, when I graduated from junior high, what was I, was I? In the 10th grade, I think I was 15. I, I I was gone for like, I graduated on a Friday and my dad found me like on Wednesday, I think, you know, like, I went and celebrated with my uncle and it was just, there was just no, you know, whether this is before they had a detox or a, you know, all they had was juvenile hall. You know, I visited that quite, quite often. And, you know, juvenile hall was no threat to me. It was once you go to jail, this, the fear of jail is, is gone. And, and when I went to jail, there was so many Mexicans there. I thought we were supposed to go, you know, there's, I couldn't believe it is it Mexican, African-American, very, but it, <clears throat> It wasn't, ra- people say, well, that's racist. No, it was economics. Economics. Yeah, you know, economics. It was, you know, poor people. There was, there was a lot of. There wasn't any rich African Americans. There wasn't any rich Mexicans. There wasn't any rich white guys. You know, because they could all get out, get attorneys. There was this. It was. It was economics. We were destined to go to to go to juvenile hall. And once you get caught up in that, it becomes a way of life. It's just there's no fear. So, you know, and uh,
0: I understand that you, you sold four ounces of sugar to a federal agent. That was the, the time you went to prison for the long term.
1: Last I had it was a, what they call sale in loot of narcotics. Well, <clears throat> well, the federal, the feds, the federal, the federal government was the one that caught me because they thought I was this huge drug dealer. But I was selling sugar to everybody. <laughs> I mean, we... <laughs> you
0: must have had a lot of enemies.
1: I, everybody hated me. I mean, basically, I mean, it's like... And, and <clears throat> me and a, and a friend of mine, Dennis, uh, you know, we thought we were just like the biggest gangsters in the world. We had plenty of guns and and, you know, we would we would burn people or, or rob people and then tell them where we live, you know, tell them where, you know, and so in case you want to come get us, you know, and, and kind of a death way, it's kind of you, you reach a point to where there's no turning back. So, you know, oh, forgive me, anybody that's in prison, please forgive me for saying this, but the feds saved me. When they arrested me, they saved me. It wasn't, it wasn't an arrest, it was a rescue. Because I was, I was, me and Dennis, I think, were both begging to die, you know. And huh. and. Uh,
0: and what about Gilbert?
1: Well, Gilbert was in prison. Gilbert, yeah, Gilbert went back and forth to prison, you know. And uh, oh, when I got arrested for that, he had just, he got out, you know, when I was, when I got arrested for that. And then that was uh, 1965, and I did 65, 66, 67. Sixty-eight. I got out August 23rd of 1969. And in 1968, I just kind of said, I'm done. You know, it's like, I'm, gonna, I'm either going to spend the rest of my life in prison or I am going to take drugs and alcohol out of my life. And see, the the one of them, the biggest problems that ruined my drug career was that I happened to walk into a 12-step program when I was 15 years old. And this guy, he gave me the curse of 12-step programs. He said, Danny, if you leave, you will die, go insane, or go to jail. And I left, of course. You know, there's 20 of us, we all left. And and, uh, every time I got arrested, I would hear this guy's voice. Die, go insane, or go to jail. And at first it was kind of, (laughs) yeah, right. But then when you're in like San Quentin State Prison and over the loudspeaker, 12 steps, it's now a meeting in the Protestant chapel, all inmates wishing to attend. You look and you hear, die, go insane, or go to jail. And you're sitting in prison. So it's like in, in Soledad in 1969, I remember, when I was in prison, this guy named Johnny Harris, my sponsor came up to, to, he was an outside speaker and he said, Danny, why don't you join us and give yourself a break and join us when you're outside. I remember laying on my bunk in 1969, August 22nd, and I'd given away everything in my cell that was of importance because I had a beautiful cell. And I said, you know what, I, I'm gonna go, I gotta go. I gotta go to a meeting before I do anything. I did, and so the seed was planted. And it's and, and funny, when I told Johnny that I'd walked into that meeting in 1959, he said, Danny, those were previews of coming attractions. And they were.
0: <laughs> but tell me about one of the things you said about San Quentin and others is that either you're predator or prey. What, what do you yeah. mean by that?
1: You have people that have been in prison 5, 10, 15, 20 years, have absolutely no means of support, you know. So they're either going to be preyed upon or they're going to be the predators. See, if somebody comes in and you check their books, you know, you check their jacket, their record and everything, and you find out who they have writing to them, who they have, how much money they have on their books. And so here's a guy with $300 on his book. His mother writes to him every other week. His sister writes to him. And so then this, so this guy, unless he's a killer, he's prey. It's that simple. It's like the only thing that saved me I was a predator, but we would go to somebody who had, who was going to be prey and would say, look, people are going to prey upon you. You can pay us and we'll keep them off you or don't and you can just be prey. And... Sometimes, no, no, I'll take care of myself. But when they came back with a black eye, you know, because they got beat up, okay, what do I do? Now, outside, you would call that extortion. Inside, it's survival. You know what I mean? You're like, yeah. You're like a
0: predator protector, so
1: to speak. Exactly, and so so, so a prey protector, you're, prote- you're, you're protecting the prey, but but you better be a predator you know that means you would have to be willing to do whatever it took to protect your investment. You know what I mean? This is my livelihood, so if somebody approaches them and they say that, then you have to go and if they say, "Hey, this guy's you know asking me for money or then you have to go and do whatever it takes. And now that means that the two predators, you know, one of them isn't going to survive.
0: And you were also a great boxer.
1: That uncle of mine, Gilbert, he was a golden glove champion. He was an amazing fighter, and uh, he was just built perfect for fighting. And he started training me when when I was eight. We'd smoke weed and box, you know, and we'd just like box, and so that that made me a a celebrity in the penitentiary the minute people know that you box you know we used to have it's funny cuz we'd have people from the outside come in from San Quentin and we were going to put on an exhibition but the problem was that Mexicans don't understand exhibition and the, the the mob the mafia would come up and go hey we got money on you homes so come on no 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 wait it's an exhibition <laughs> they, <laughs> and and so i would either have to tell this guy i was fighting Look, uh, we better fight, cause uh, you know, or I would have to surprise him and just try to knock him out, <laughs> cause they, they didn't like losing.
0: Am I correct that you were a year and a half in solitary confinement?
1: Well, oh, God, I was, <laughs> I was like uh, the last time I was what from August. No, I was from uh, Cinco de Mayo to 1968. To August 23rd, 1968. I think the longest was about three months at a time, but back and forth all the time.
0: How do you survive that?
1: Me, what I used to like to do, because you have to like, kind of go crazy to keep from going crazy. I used to act out the Wizard of Oz. Oh,
0: the whole movie?
1: The whole movie, I just,
0: she gave me, give me those shoes, Dorothy, the
1: whole kind of, <laughs> And, and uh, I remember the guards would hear me, they'd come by, trail what's wrong with you? Did you kill my sister? <laughs> He's nuts, you know. But but it's your survival mode. You, you, you understand? It's like you're not, you're not paying attention to them. If you pay attention to them, you will go crazy. If you sit there and say, my God, how many hours have I been here? You'll go nuts. And then the other one I used to love was, was Charles Lawton, The the Hunchback of Notre Dame. She gave me water. Yep. God, I used to love that. And I would act it all out. <laughs> uh, uh, Mario. Mario did four years in the hole. That's my assistant now, right? Yeah. And my cousin did five, four years, five years. You know, and he was 17 when he went to prison. And we got him out when he was 55. So he basically a 17 year old mind in a 55 year old body because you you're, you stop growing emotionally once you once you're in prison, you just stop and uh, his name right now is in the law books because we we talked to Jerry uh, the governor at the time we talked to senators to get him out of prison because he was a juvenile sentenced to life in prison. And we helped get him out. So now, 4,500 juveniles that were sentenced that have already done 30, 35 years are, are there's, there's about 4,500 of them that have gotten out because of that law.
0: Okay. Oh, good.
1: When I go to juvenile hall and I tell people, it doesn't matter where you, where, where you start, it matters where you finish. And I look at, because I look at kids, when you're in juvenile hall, Because of the system, you feel like you've been thrown away. You've been thrown away. And I tell them, look, right now you're in juvie. You can start right here on a different path. Now the path you take, you can either end up in San Quentin, Folsom, or go into the gas chamber like me. Or you can just go on a different path. Start doing everything you can for your fellow man and you watch and see and for me it's like I made a vow to say the Lord's name every day and 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 do whatever I could for my fellow man and I've held I've 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 kept my promise and he's kept him I even talked to God a couple of days ago and I asked him how am I doing He said, great Danny you're almost out of hell keep it up
0: Cause, yeah, because that's exactly what you say. You say, everything good that has happened to me comes as a direct result of helping others.
1: Everything, and that's a God's honest truth, everything. Yeah.
0: After you got out of prison, you became a drug counselor, which you still are. And from this became your massive film career.
1: I was running around trying to be an extra, cause, but I wasn't, I wouldn't want to be a movie. In the movies, I just, you could get 50 bucks cash for standing there and looking mean. Can you, you know, look like a, look like an inmate. Like I just stand there. You yeah, That's great. That's great. It's so funny. I'd be standing there and, and uh, directors would like, look at me like, We were standing, they put me out front and I had this massive tattoo on my chest. Take off your shirt. And so one day, one of the kids that I was working with says, you know, we go to this movie called uh, Runaway Train. And it was funny. It was like. You
0: got sent there because as a drug counselor, right?
1: Well, I went there to help this kid. So we got sent to this movie and, and I'm with this kid. I run into this friend of mine named Eddie Bunker.
0: The screenwriter.
1: Famous writer, right? He says, I, I, "Well, he goes Trejo." I go, "Yeah." He's, I saw you win the lightweight and the welterweight title up in San Quentin. I go, "You're Eddie Bunker." We started talking. I knew this guy, and uh, we're in prison together. And he says, "What are you doing here, Danny?" I said, "Shit, I'm, I'm making fifty bucks, hon." Oh. And he says, uh, "He says, you know what? Are you still boxing?" I go, "No, man. I'm forty years old. Are you kidding him? I don't get hit in the face anymore." And he said, "Uh." uh we need somebody to train one of the actors out of box. And I said, what's it pay? And he says, 320 a day. And I says, how bad you want this guy beat up? That's that's hit money, that's somebody getting hurt. And he said, I wasn't making that a week, even plus the 50 bucks. And so he said, no, no, you gotta be careful. This actor's really high strung. He might sock you. I said, Eddie, for 320 bucks, give him a stick. I've been beat up for free. And I started training an actor named Eric Roberts out of box for a movie called Runaway Train. And... Uh,
0: that's where it took off.
1: Yeah. And from there, I, from there to right now, I've done over 300... Uh, some, I don't know what they got me at. I stopped. And uh,
0: and you were mentioning that tattoo that Eddie, that he he recognized, because that's a prison tattoo, right? That's done with like a needle, isn't it?
1: That, yeah, that's done with a with the e string of a guitar, uh, melted into a uh, end of a toothbrush, with wrapped string around it to hold the ache, and just poke, 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 poke.
0: And poke, it's a big poke. one. That's the one where the listeners will recognize that beautiful woman there. <laughs> Who is she?
1: It's Funny, she she looks but must like Selma Hayek because when I met I met Selma Hayek i was staring at her she kept looking i met her on on a uh, desperado I, walked up to her, I said you know what you may not know it but i have you tattooed on my chest and she didn't believe it i showed you oh my god I, I opened my shirt and she was like my god what you? and i said i put that on before you were born because i was dreaming of you and, and she was she said that i don't know but she said that one time in an interview for this huge <laughs> but she's a very, very dear friend of mine, you know, and we did Desperado together, we did a, a Machete together, we did Once Upon a Time in Mexico together. She's amazing, amazing woman. You know. She invited me when, when I was a single parent. And my kid's mom would pick up my kids on Thanksgiving. And she asked me, what are you doing for Thanksgiving? Dad?" Yeah, I said, hey, nothing, I'm, you know, just go find turkey somewhere her have my kids. And so night before Thanksgiving, she called me and invited me to her house with her family. I was so, uh, I couldn't. And then to see Selma Hayek barefooted in the kitchen, making a turkey was like, <laughs>
0: Wow! <laughs> so you worked with her, Roberto Rodriguez. You've worked with everyone. What movie propelled you from being inmate number one and the extra um, in the credits?
1: The first time I had a name, I did a movie called Penitentiary Three, right? And I, I, my name was Severe. I didn't really talk, I just fought, you know, and I just had a couple lines. But the movie that really gave me a push, I, I played. Uh, Art and, uh and uh, I actually wore a suit. I never showed my tattoo. It was the first time. You know, otherwise, I always showed my... I, I wore a t- suit because I was a, a gangster in a movie called Death Wish 4 with Charles Bronson, and I got to meet Charles Bronson, you know? So he was like, that's my one of my one of my heroes, and, and I was hoping he wasn't Hollywood because I'd really met a bunch of Hollywood dicks. I mean, just because you know, movie stars, I hate, you know, people calling people movie stars. Because if you, like Robert De Niro, if you call him a movie star, go, no, 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 I'm, a, I'm an actor. I'm a, you know, you know, I'm an actor. I'm not a, movie stars are, are the most pretentious people I've ever met in my life.
0: Didn't Eddie Bunker say that to you? Be a Hollywood star, don't act like one.
1: Eddie Bunker said his words, exact words were, When I started getting kind of recognized, because he was with me all the way, he says, Danny, everybody can think, the whole world can think you're a movie star, but you can't. And I love that. I absolutely like, you got it. And and then we went, we were standing by a movie star and we heard everybody, ooh. And then when he walked away, we heard him talk, that idiot, I'd like to knock that guy out. You know, it's like, so I, 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 I never wanted to be the person that people talk bad about when I leave, you know? And uh, uh, so I'm not, I'm not a movie star. I'm a working actor and I work more than most movie stars. <laughs>
0: yeah, you do. I think you have like 19 films in post-production at the moment, so I, I got
1: you. Hey, hey, as soon as this pandemic is over, we're off and yeah. running.
0: <laughs> I mean, but I'm what was running. that like though, making that tremendous radical change from your, your childhood, from prison to, I mean, I'm going to call you a movie star because you are a movie star. But I mean, what was that like?
1: You know what? It's uh, my ambition was was never to be a, a even a celebrity. My ambition was to be just a great dad. And and my two boys were born, and I was kind of, uh, I didn't want to be like my dad, but but I was always telling them I love you, I hug you and stuff, and being with them and stuff. You know what I mean? But when my daughter was born, right, Danielle, I was just melted. It was like my little girl. And she was perfect little. She was like, well, I was a single parent for a while. And I would we'd get in the car and then she would start. She was like three years old. Daddy, wait, my purse, my purse. You forgot my purse. You're three years old. What the hell do you need with a purse? Dad, oh. And I would go get her purse. And she would say something like, this doesn't match my shoes. You know, I was like, you're three. What do you, what do you got? Forty-year-old clone, and, and so I would take her upstairs, and then she'd get the purse that matched her shoes. She was just a just a beautiful little girl, completely. You know what I mean? And so this was this that that was the one that just like, uh, we talk every day. I don't talk to the boys every day. They'll call me. They'll call me. Hey, what's up? What's up? How you doing? My son is a master. He just directed me in a film, and
0: uh, so are you saying that's what kept you grounded in terms of becoming a Hollywood star?
1: more than anything more than anything and uh, when people would crowd us you know she's really good people would crowd us for autographs and stuff but I, 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 I will never refuse an autograph or a picture right such a blessing to make to make somebody's day with an autograph you know and uh, and uh, I think my daughter said it but daddy that's why God made you an actor not to be a ooh big star. But to sign autographs and make people's day and say, God bless you, because I always do that, you know? And, and so I guess that's, that's what it is. That's why, you know? And,
0: in terms of like, when you see Hollywood stars trying to play gangsters and prisoners and Chicanos, what do you, what do you feel about that?
1: I got to say this, John Travolta in a movie. Yeah. I've said your name. He, he, they made a, they, they tried to make him look like me in this movie, right? Rugged face, mustache. And the, the trade said, John Travolta tried to be a bully. He made it to a high school bully. Danny Trejo was a bully in San Quentin. Like, <laughs> yeah. John, I didn't say it, okay? <laughs> but, you know, I mean, nobody can act like a gangster like Robert De Niro. Nobody can act like Joe Pesci. These guys are really, but they're, they know they're actors and they don't play this out. What I hate to see is uh, an actor that that went to Juilliard and went to Juan Strasberg's, went to those guys and they're like, hey, come on, man. You were a dancer. What the hell? Who cares? The last thing I want to be, tough. I don't want to be a tough guy. I want to, I wish I went to Juania Art or whatever it was, you know. Well,
0: you went to San Quentin training.
1: Well, on my resume, on my resume, me and Eddie put San Quentin drama art.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I just have to ask you about Heat, one of my absolute favorites. You're incredible at it with De Niro, with Pacino. Um, tell me about that experience.
1: Well, first of all, everybody was told, don't ask Robert De Niro and Al Pacino and, Val Kimmer for an autograph. They don't take pictures. Blah blah blah. I seen De Niro, and I just holding a camera. I says, Bob, yeah, come on, we took pictures. And, and when my son was nine years old, when I did Heat, and uh, and uh, I met, I said, Hey, Bob, this is my notice. I said, Bob, Bob, this is my son, Gilbert. Hey, Gilbert, this is Robert De Niro. And uh, Robert De Niro says, Hi, Gilbert, and puts his hand up. My son, nine years old, went. Are you talking to me? Are you talking to me? You, Robert De Niro couldn't believe. Oh my, He couldn't. He was shocked. I said, Gilbert, you didn't see that movies and the Comedy Channel, Dad. <laughs> Everybody, and Gilbert, I think Gilbert has Robert De Niro's cell number. I don't. They became great friends. And I mean, when I did uh, Machete, Robert De Niro was on, and. He did that for me. And so when 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 we met, I was like just so, you know, he's doing this movie and I'm in, right? And he goes, he'll because so he we always joked about being number one on the call sheet, right? He goes, you, number one, you, number one. And I, I didn't know what to say. I said. Can I get you some coffee, Mr. De Niro? <laughs> we just both laughed, you know. I mean, because who? Oh, how could I be the star of this movie? Robert De Niro was there, and it was just such a oh, that was such an experience. Working with him was like uh, the highlight of 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 my movie career.
0: You mentioned your son, who's a film director in his own right, and and you you his name is Gilbert, and. As we began the the interview you were talking about your uncle Gilbert. He was a big presence for you but not always positive. Why did you choose to give your son his you name? You know what?
1: Because if it wasn't for Gilbert, I I wouldn't be here talking to you. You know, he did he did what he thought I was gonna need. He taught me what I thought. He, when I walked into San Quentin, I knew exactly what to do. When I was in juvenile hall, I knew don't take any step backwards, get the first punch in, you know, and just, and I mean, basically in my neighborhood, you had two alternatives. I mean, really you could either be a a, a laborer and work your, to death like my dad, or be a seamstress, I don't know, I, I don't know what else anybody did. All, I didn't know anybody, any lawyers, I didn't know any doctors, I didn't know any teachers that were Mexican. You know, everybody that I knew around me was a laborer.
0: But the fact that he introduced you to, to crime and, and to drugs and that, do you see a forgiveness there? Or
1: I remember when he tried to make amends right before he died, he was telling me he was really sorry and I had just come home from doing that movie uh Penitentiary Three. And he would meet me at my house, me and a friend of mine named George Perry. And he would always have a pizza and uh fried zucchini. And <laughs> was with, with uh what do you call it? Like a dip. dressing, you know, and and uh, and we would ha- we would eat uh uh at two thirty, three thirty the morning when we get off work, and he'd be there and uh and he was trying to make amends to me. And I said, shut up, man. Are you kidding? If you didn't do that, I wouldn't be here. I'd be a Republican somewhere. You know what I mean? What happened was was what ha- was what happened. You know, we all have our paths to take. We can get off them or we can not start. All I am to kids in juvenile hall is hope. Saying, Hey, you But you're know, a
0: completely different influence to those kids.
1: Oh, yeah. But that's what I mean. When I go there and say, "Look, I'm a time traveler. I, I, I've been to where you're going. You don't have to go there, because my uncle, my uncle helped me get there. Now I'm back to tell you, hey, look, let's do this better. You know, let's figure out a way to go help this, mow this lady's yard, or there's this old people in the neighborhood. Let's help paint their house, or do that's the stuff that we do." you know and all of a sudden the joy that you get from some some elderly lady giving you lemonade and with tears in her eyes saying thank you so much you know. it's it's kind of like really there's no feeling no drug no feeling no nothing in the world that'll that'll do that for you
0: you still live in Pacoima how is Danny Trejo a different neighbor today than he was when he was
1: Thirteen. So funny you ask, but there was uh, four guys living in my house, right? And and uh, the guy, my assistant Mario, I met him in San Quentin when I was doing Blood in, Blood Out, and I told him about the program that I was on, and I told him, hey, we can do this. Anyway, he ended up coming out of prison and getting sick, and I hired him as my assistant, and got well, and he got a liver transplant, and. This lady one time came up, my neighbor came to my house and knocked on the door. Angel, who had just gotten out of prison, did 22 years, came out. And she handed him the keys and said, uh, would you tell Danny to watch my house? Because we're going, we'll be away for two weeks and feed my cat and, and gave him the keys. He came back, and there was like six of us in the house watching the fights hey, does your neighbor know that everybody in this house has been busted for burglary at least one time? And I said, yeah, now watch her house. Angel and Joey, they they actually patrolled the perimeter of her house every night, checking every window, checking every, her cat got fat. You know what I mean? And and she, she had a better alarm system than anybody in the world. So
0: that's what you do. You're protecting your community. I'm still
1: doing the same thing I did in prison. <laughs> we had a little earthquake a couple of days ago, and but four of our neighbors ran to our house.
0: Oh. <laughs> you
1: know?
0: Has it ever been difficult for you to stay sober? These, I mean, it's been five decades. I know, but I mean, when you tell the kids,
1: I think I think that I saw the real side of drinking and using, you know? And so drugs and alcohol, when I see them, I don't see the party that people see. I don't see the good time. I see showering with 50 men and trying not to look. I see uh, stabbing somebody over two packs of cigarettes. I see uh, people being thrown off a tear. I see the bad side. You know, the crashing a car, killing two people. You know, it's like that. That's that's alcohol. That's drugs. You know, for me, that might not be for anybody else. So when I say that that I've dedicated my life to helping other people, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't yell at anybody that doesn't want to help. I don't it's fine. I understand you don't have enough time. You're married to your job. I understand that. You know what I mean? You know, you, you can't, you're busy. I owe, just I owe my life, you know, and so the I don't want to ever stop helping. You know what I mean? Because I'm paying back. And maybe those movie stars don't owe. And believe me, I ask them. I hey, you want to go to this juvenile hall with me? Oh, well, you know what I'm doing? Okay, I got it. You know, I got it. Yeah.
0: But are you worried about the kids? I'm thinking we're living in these super difficult COVID times with extreme lockdowns Absolutely. and disillusion economically and, and the kids in your area. What do you tell them?
1: You know, what? we have a big sign outside my house that says, congratulations, class of 2020. And, you know, first responders, big sign. And uh, and nurses, God gave us doctors and nurses and nurses. Uh, people stop and take pictures by them, you know, and they come into my door and knock and I go out and take pictures with them, you know. And But the thing that I tell them is this is just a, a spot. You know, this is just what we're doing. You know, wear a mask, come over to my house, you know, and, and uh, <clears throat> we all kind of wear masks and, and, uh, and we feed a lot of people and we give up a lot of clothes. And that's helping is just, it's really simple. If you have an old shirt, give it to a homeless guy. You know, if you have... We buy socks. We always call it "sock of the homeless" because we always just give them socks, you know. And and uh, and uh, it's such a joy. It's just such a joy to give somebody four pairs, five pairs of socks, and and they almost cry, you know. And they they uh, just, just give you a thumbs up, and they don't. Sometimes they don't even know how to say thank you. <clears throat> you know, they've been. They feel like they've been thrown away. They don't know how to thank. They just look at you, and you see that. In their eyes, you know, you know, thank you for caring and gotcha home, it's okay.
0: And one of the things I suppose you can, you gave a lot is your Trejo's tacos. You have a cookbook out, um, which my impression is that it's a real love letter to your Los Angeles and mostly to your mom. Um, How is she reflected in those recipes?
1: You know what? She she was like a great cook. She was a great cook. And I was sorry, really, that she was kind of like married to the house. We had great meals the first of the month. And then towards the end of the month, we had stuff like we mix it and it's out of the cupboard and shut up. Don't ask. Eat it. You know, it was all great. Because
0: money was tight.
1: Yeah. Yeah, them up absolutely.
0: I know that Anthony Bourdain was a huge fan of your taco. He did a whole show about. It.
1: Hey, he said he wouldn't eat any place in L.A. but my restaurant. He loved it. He ate. That guy could eat, and he loved the vegan.
0: Okay. <laughs> well, I love the carne asada, so I'm completely. There.
1: <laughs> Me too.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so finally, I. I have to ask you about your coming projects, because you're helping all these people, you're doing all these cookbooks, but you have so many, I mean, you must be out filming all the time.
1: I have a film coming up that we're going to do. It's called uh, Social Security. It's with Craig Moss. It's the guy I did badass with. And then my son wrote a film called Acha, which is hatchets. Fighting with hatchets, but I really, I just love it. My son directed me in a film called uh, From a Son. It's me and him actually working together. And it was like, wow, the heaviest thing I've ever done, you know. So
0: thank you so much for your time. And I have to say hello from my five year old, who is an absolute Spy Kids fan. And from my hey,
1: it's Uncle Machete. What's his name? His
0: name is Benjamin.
1: Benjamin, hey, don't forget. You are now an official spy kit. All right. (laughs) Thank you so much. God bless you.
0: Thank you so much to Danny Trejo. The documentary Inmate Number 1, The Rise of Danny Trejo is streaming now. And his cookbook is called Trejo's Tacos, Recipes and Stories from L.A. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe to Pop Culture Confidential wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have a moment, please rate and review the show. It really helps others to find us. And send me your thoughts and comments. I'm on Twitter, at Christina Biru. See you next time. Don't you know that you're a grown-up?